How do we write trauma unflinchingly yet ethically? What is literature's role in witnessing, archiving and healing deep personal and societal wounds? In this episode of the DWF podcast, Edda Bram Presser, Maria Tamarkin and Anders Villani delve into the complexities of authentically rendering trauma on the page. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, I might just get started, but I'm sure people will continue to walk in, but that's okay. Um, so before we start, I just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Um, here, as well as in all places on this continent, we meet on sites where sovereignty was never ceded, and therefore where sovereignty is ongoing. These are sites that go back <clears throat> um, over 100,000 years as places of storytelling. Um, but also, I think we should keep in mind, in light of the discussion that we're about to have today, as more recent places um, of trauma impacted by settler colonialism. And I don't think we can even begin to have a discussion about trauma and its representation without keeping in mind that trauma disproportionately impacts the lives of Aboriginal people, um, both directly and intergenerationally. Um, with that said, it gives me <laughs> much pleasure to introduce our three panelists for today. Um, oh, perfect, I have them in order. I must have known in my heart. Uh, <laughs> so over there we have Bram Presser, uh, who describes himself as a scruffy scrivener. I assume it's the dreads. Um, that's not me saying that, that's you saying that. Um, Semi-reformed punk rocker, I think a bit of a Melbourne personality for those who... I've been watching the music videos of Yidcore, is that right, online? Okay, what is this? <laughs> You've got to hop onto YouTube. <laughs> um, he's a recovering academic and <laughs> an occasional criminal lawyer and a two-time cartoon character. Um, and Bram's debut novel, The Book of Dirt, was published in Australia in 2017 to wide acclaim and went on to win the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Fiction, Best New Writer and People's Choice Award in 2018, as well as the Voss Literary Prize. Total overachiever, I think. Um, <laughs> the novel was published in the USA in 2018 and recently won the Goldberg Prize for Debut Fiction at the National Jewish Book Awards. Um, and then next, we have the lovely Maria Tumarkin, um, who writes books, essays, reviews, and pieces for performance and radio. She collaborates with sound and visual artists and has had her work carved into dockside tiles. She's the author of four books of ideas, the latest, Axiomatic, by Brow, uh, published by Brow Books, won the 2018 Melbourne Prize for Literature's Best Writing Award and was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Maria holds a PhD in cultural history and teaches creative writing at the University of Melbourne. And then finally, uh, next to me, we have Anders Villani, who holds an MFA from the University of Michigan's Helen Zell Writers Program, where he received the Del Benco Prize for Poetry. His first full-length collection, Arawaya, was released in 2018 by Five Islands Press. Um, I currently have it on hold at the State Library, so you can't get it <laughs> until my week is up. Uh, but I leave today, so you can really get it. Um, also a two-time winner of the John Marsden Prize for Young Australian Writers. He was born and lives in Melbourne. Um, and I'll be chairing today. I am Edda Gnaiden. Um, and let's leave it at that. <laughs> because I'm sure we all want to uh, hear from these fantastic writers uh, that I feel very lucky to be uh, in the presence of today. 
Um, so obviously, <laughs> we're all here to have a conversation about literature and trauma. Um, and so when I was formulating what I wanted to talk about today um, and sort of going over everyone's body of work and reading and rereading your book, Maria um, Axiomatic, I was really struck by um, this metaphor that uh, appears towards the end of the book where you talk about the idea of um, writing the traumatic story of someone as uh, lifting a burden, and you characterize yourself not as a kookaburra, but as a, more of a donkey, someone who is sort of <laughs> carrying that burden for someone else. Um, and it got me thinking more and more about <clears throat> what the role of writing trauma, or what the function or purpose is. Do we do it for, for me? I think I do it mostly for myself, or for people immediately around me, sort of to um, be an enlightened witness, I've heard it described. <laughs> um, but I understand that for many people, it's probably quite different. So I just wanted to put that to all of you. What, what do you see as that role? Who your audience is? Is it just for you? Is it for others? What sort of communities do you imagine when you write trauma? For me. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you. Sorry, no, that's all right. Is your mic working? Uh, is my mic working? Mine's not either. No, I just have a loud voice. <laughs> <laughs> I have a loud we... voice too. Go, let's right. go. Bring it on. <laughs> so we'll just do it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, can you hear me? Can you hear me at the back? Oh, thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. Correct. Um, although what I'm about to say is very funny to be shouting that. I You reckon that's what it is? No, no, it's not working. It's not on. I am manhandling it. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, so please just gesticulate, um, Alison, if I <coughs> go become all poetic and, yeah, and you can't hear me. Um, so um, I, I should say that I don't uh, write much about my own traumas. Uh, I do write about other people's traumas, which is a really important distinction, and I know you want to get into that distinction. Um, and for me, so I sort of stay awake at night and have done so for the past two decades, trying to figure out, you know, how I do that. Uh, but also why I do that. And to me, the kind of, all these sort of ideas that were already available about, you know, why is it that I um, imagine that that's okay and useful and meaningful for me as a writer to be writing about other people's traumas, all those kind of already available um, ideas that I could hang on to. I, I, you know, like giving voice to the voiceless and, you know, being a witness and, um, you know, um, sort of truth-seeking uh, and justice-seeking and all, and all those things that are kind of there and as a writer you can just grab them and sort of justify to yourself what it is that you are doing. I just ended up feeling like they were not quite true to my experience of what was happening, what was in that space between me and the person whose life I, I wanted to write about. Uh, and I ended up thinking that maybe the most that I could do as a writer is just lift the burden, a tiny little bit of the burden for a tiny little period of time. It's not grand, it's not like I take your burden off your shoulders, go and be free now, survivor. You know, it's not, you know, but like just a little bit of it, 
for a little period of time uh, and I take it upon myself or off those shoulders and that to me perhaps is the most meaningful way to think about what, 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 happens, what happens for me. Um, and moving away... Hey. Marvel. No, no, it's only... Oh, no. I think I have a microphone now. Speak into this nub. <laughs> um, so, so, yes, not, not voice to the voiceless, but a donkey. Yep. Okay. That's such a Maria Tamarkin metaphor. Um, should I go, Bram? I don't uh, know. Sh- if, yeah, go for it. Well, we should, you should not decide this. It's, it's the person who makes decisions. <laughs> Editor, is that right? <laughs> Which I think is me. Um, well, yeah, let's say Anders. It seems like you have your answer at the tip of your tongue. Oh, absolutely, always. Um, <laughs> no, I think uh, I've always written, and um, to an extent, perhaps I've always written about about my trauma, even if it was edging towards it in the form of a kind of undercurrent or a sort of a, a mood and imminence in my work. And um, I think one of the one of the, the most deep-seated fears that I've that I've kind of harboured about myself um, that that uh, concerns the traumatic experiences that I that I suffered um, has been, I guess, how it's how it's plunged me into a kind of self-absorption. Um, but trauma is this; uh, it's sort of simultaneously a, uh, a space that annihilates the self, but also pushes me inwards and um, makes me feel uh, that I'm not um, I'm not able to properly commune with people. That I'm that I'm only invested in what I'm what I'm doing. That I'm obsessed by by the, this, these issues. And um, as I've come to write more and more, more and more candidly, I suppose, about it, um, the lyric poem form is interesting in that, in, in a romantic sense, it is that most solitary of, um, of uh, sort of utterances that it's, it's kind of, um, I think Hegel described as, as the, uh, the subject coming into consciousness of itself. So I think that... Um, Carrying the burden, so to speak, um, the page began to do that. The, the the sort of indeterminate relationship between me as a person and the figures in my poetry, that distance, that similarity, but also that ability to sort of to see them as 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 similar to me but other than me as well, became a space where I could put the trauma in a frame. So I think the audience initially was was myself, um, and later it started to become something that, um, you know, I felt more comfortable putting out there as a work of, as works of art to be received and read. I just like to say that I like that your voice just booms as you sit back while <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us do this. Um, <laughs> so, I think, I, like, I write, or at least I wrote the book of Dirt, my only, the only thing that I, I've written that is the trauma experience. For, for to try and make sense, to try and understand, um, I don't know whether to describe it as a, as a presence or an absence in my in my life on like three levels. So firstly, there was the direct. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Um, I could see, like, like there was a lot about them that I didn't, I, I simply didn't understand, and and these were the legacies of their trauma, right? And and I wanted to, after they had died, and various 
I suppose, rumours about their experiences, because they never spoke about, about what had happened to them. Uh, various rumours about their experiences at the surface, I then wanted to look into it more to try and, and get to know them better as, 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 as people. So in that sense, you know, I needed to um, engage with, with their trauma directly um, to, to understand what it was that I witnessed. They died when I was 19, so throughout my childhood. Um, also, then, there's like this, this idea of post-memory, the idea that, 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 that trauma passes on through generations, right? And that's been kind of backed up by the whole epigenetics thing where they've actually basically found that genetically, like, trauma can be passed on to genera uh, between generations. So I've inherited, right? So in, in that sense, I, I wrote to try and understand myself. And also then there was the community alive. Like, you know, we're in Melbourne, we have the biggest Holocaust survivor population per capita in the world outside Israel. And so, like, we grew up very, like, explicitly in the shadow of the Holocaust. And so it informed a lot of the way the community operates. So these are all things that, like, were my childhood. So, so I, I wrote to make sense of that, like, to understand it. Um, and, yeah, and also to kind of make peace with all of those three things as well. And I, I just thought that, you know, that's, that's what I, I, I needed to do uh, for myself. And, like, because I, I sort of think, like, in, the, in this, this, like, this epigenetic post-memory sense, it's this kind of pendulum swinging off this way and we're all kind of basically crippled by trauma, right? Um, then someone's got to be the one who... And this, I'm, not like, I'm trying to make myself some heroic figure here, but... Um, Just like, say donkey. donkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Someone's got to be the donkey who uh, <laughs> ties the pendulum to her ear and, and drags the, the legless donkey, in fact, and, and, and then just wiggles its way. Right? So, no, so I, like, the point being, like, I think that if, 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 if trauma can be passed down, then healing can be passed down too. So I think that, like, particularly like third generation, um, those who are, and fourth generation, who, who are further removed from the trauma, by engaging with it and understanding, can begin the pendulum turning the other way. And so what, what we then pass down to, to, to our kids, um, and to the, yeah, just the general, the community in the generation below us, is... Uh, the healing rather than the trauma. Yep. <laughs> Thank you for that incredible answer. You've all um, brought out what I, what I was thinking as I was reading all of your work, because I think that you've all sort of touched on both the, past, the incredibly personal purpose we feel when we write trauma, as well as these sort of slightly more abstracted, impersonal purpose that we feel. So the personal purpose being something about healing um, <clears throat> and... Maybe for you, Bram, I went, as I was reading your work, the thing, the thing that was equally captivating to me was not just uh, the story that you were telling, but or the, the trauma of the Holocaust that you were sort of um, chipping away at, but also the trauma of having your, the memory of your grandparents as, or your grandfather as you knew him taken away from you and that interrupting the grieving process and having to recover him as a person in order to be able to continue to grieve that loss, which to me is very personal. Um, yeah, and then we have this this impersonal, more structural work that we that I say we that more so you all are, are trying to do at, at um, doing something for collective memory, and um, it makes me think of that. Oh, I can't. I'm going to ruin ruin the the the, the anecdote. But um, in axiomatic, Maria, you have someone saying, "I feel that I both need to provide my um, testimony." I have to speak even though I don't want to speak because I dread the day when someone says something, something Holocaust and someone else responds, oh, what's the Holocaust? Is that a movie? Oh, is that right? Something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah and I, I just thought, 
yeah, we, I think we're all working at cross purposes a lot of the time. Um, and also I'm trying to put our work into conversation. <laughs> so I found myself thinking about the fact that and is when I read your work, it's inc maybe this is a result of, of the lyric form, um, but it's incredibly visceral, it's incredibly embodied. I think it resides within these really intimate spaces, bedrooms, um, bodies, you have some incredible sort of sensory imagery, the idea of someone chewing on wood board or something like that. Um, it, it resonates in a very embodied and bodily format to me. And then, <clears throat> and of course, um, Bram and Maria, I think that you are often writing from these personal, intimate, familiar spaces, um, as well as writing that, that the big T drama. Um, and so I just wanted to try to get at that question of um, externalization and the other and trauma that is both ours and not, so coming back to the epigenetics. Um, yeah, and I suppose my question is something along the lines of, do you think that this binary holds in any way? Do we have the big T trauma and then the little T trauma? Are they always conversing with each other? Is it possible to write the big T trauma without in some way accessing the little T out trauma? <laughs> well, maybe it's a good, maybe I'm a, the right place to start out because mine feels um, like it's the most. Uh, sort of restricted to my personal experience and, and, and um, you know, the lyric form being the most, um, the most private of those forms. Um, I think that I was reading something the other day where there was a sociologist who said something like um, our, our, um, our sort of delusions of, like, the singularity of our experience are greatly overrated, something like that. And it was basically, you know, when you're writing something that feels utterly unique to you. Uh, you are, you're not, um, you're not taking into account how the, the private always inheres in the public and vice versa. Um, and so um, I think that, you know, for me, um, the issue of childhood sexual trauma, um, and you know, uh, a lot of sort of satellite issues around that. Uh, you talked about the domesticity in my work and how there's in these intimate domestic spaces um, that, you know, I think Freud and psychoanal psychoanalysis were sort of the first, first to paint those spaces as being potentially menacing and potentially um, being um, dangerous spaces. Um, I think going into um, a very private domestic realm and showing the possibility for violence there um, to me, uh, one of the reasons why I, I'm motivated to do that and I'm willing to put myself in, in difficult places um, to, 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 to make art out of that is because I feel that there's, uh, there's a collective value in it, I think, to, uh, to understand Can better. Like there's something that, 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 that you said, that this, this idea about us, um, the absurdity of our belief in the singularity of our, of our you know, traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was reading um, Alice Pung's book, Her Father's Daughter, mm -hmm. right? And I was reading an absolutely magnificent book about her parents' experience in, yeah. in the killing field. And, like, you know, I knew a bit about the killing field, but, but I, as I was reading it, like, the parallels with the Holocaust were so, like, incredibly evident. And I was thinking, hold on a sec, like, you know, I, I have this in my mind, this idea about the, the uniqueness and the thing of, of the Holocaust, and then suddenly you read of another genocide and the, and, and the experience is in, like 
incredibly similar. Like, like I had my jaw on the floor for two thirds of that book, right? Um, yeah, I, I just it, it is weird that we're you know we do believe that that that, that we I don't know, have such a a, a unique experience. Uh, we don't like, but but um, with 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 writing, uh, you know, big T versus small T trauma. Like big T trauma, in my kind of experience, would be writing big H Holocaust. Mm. And like there's there's mm. a kind of a, a line expanded about in in just. The circles of writing about the Holocaust is you cannot write the Holocaust, right? And but <coughs> for me, what was important was was, was that personalization of the, both my you know, my grandparents and the people they loved, um, their um, involvement, but also to to strip away the idea of the, the big H or the big T. Um, and because for me, a really important part of writing this book was also giving agency. To a group that is seen as kind of a victim group, mm -hmm. um, and I think when they're casting these kind of, um, I don't know, kind of almost cliche templates, right? You take away the reality of the experience, you take away their agency, and so that to me was actually a very important part of reclaiming the small H or small T from the big H, big T. Um, I wonder. Um the you know because you used um, this idea of singularity and then this idea of uniqueness. So I wonder if trauma is always singular, just not unique. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe 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 there is a distinction there. Mm -hmm. uh, because I imagine and I and I and I you know what Bram um, described because I've uh, um, read a lot about different kinds of traumas and um, spoke to people at length about all sorts of different experiences and of course you do arrive in that space of going, oh my God, you know, this, this genocide is just like that genocide and, uh, and this, you know, uh, terrible private trauma is just like that terrible private trauma. Mm. And, I think, and, and, and I think there's big truth in it, but I think it's also something that you cannot accept fully. You have to resist this idea that, you know, you, each trauma is kind of fundamentally... Um, well, traumas are fundamentally like Tolstoy, you know, all have happy Yeah, they're all alike in their All traumas are fundamentally alike because there is something that th the work of saying, you know, the work of taking the walls down around the Holocaust or around other forms of trauma, taking those walls down, you know, taking this idea away that this is kind of something that is unlike anything else. That work is really important, but it cannot kind of go indefinitely and it needs to be resisted. I feel like it's like you have to be moving in that direction and also moving in the opposite direction by asserting that there are things that are kind of profoundly singular, not unique. Yeah, you don't want to kind of singular. deny the experience of the person who suffered. Exactly. Right. Which, uh, I, think yeah. I, I remember there was a, there was a thing at, um, at a, there was a, a, a Holocaust Remembrance um, uh, service where a guy got up and spoke about um, Rwanda mm -hmm. and like a lot of people were like the Holocaust survivors are sort of bristling and they're going well that's all well and good but this is about my um, suffering and, my, and it, was, it was very interesting that any like anything that might take away from the from the, 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 the trauma the individualised trauma of, of a person is actually Dangerous to self as well, you know, or, or problematic. Right? Well, I, I, I think it's sorry, just no, of course, yeah, of course, shut please. Up, shut up. But um, I, I think it's important that 
survivors of, of Rwandan genocide come and speak in the spaces. I agree. In, in, absolutely important. But I, but I think if we were even to go back to childhood um, um, sexual abuse trauma, if we were, you know, thinking about the Royal Commission, mm -hmm. even because it's, it's, it's quite particular how um, children suffered in uh, in those institutional settings. There is something about saying that 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 there is something you know that is kind of a shared experience that is you know one child's experience is similar to the other child's experience. There's something about it that's really both important and really dangerous. So, mm -hmm. so I think mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. to you have to kind of do both things. You have to move in the opposite directions. Mm -hmm. And I think with trauma, because trauma has this relationship with language as well that is so complicated, and we you know like can actually trauma be put into language? Can it be held in language? You know, will the language inevitably fail? Will it fall short of even, you know, getting anywhere near the, the core of it? But do we then say nothing? So you yeah. put it in language while you also recognize that the language cannot quite hold it. So I think with trauma, it's always that kind of right, left, forward, backwards. It's just this con constant movement, and you cannot kind of arrive at a fixed place of writing about it or having a relationship as a writer with it. Can I just quickly say that I think that... that that danger to me is compounded by um, psychiatric psychological frameworks mm. that will, um, um, at, a, at the level of sort of symptomology, mm. will basically say people suffering from PTSD uh, more or less experience the same symptoms irrespective of what kind of trauma they experience. Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of flashbacks, it's the same kind of issues with dreams, you know, um, it's the same kind of triggering sort of embodied experiences. And like you said, Maria, that's, I see why we need to try to create some sort of a, a, an overarching framework for, for, for helping people, but also you have to be very, very careful to um, sort of create these, this kind of equivalency between experiences. And I think that's where literature is so important because it takes the bird's eye view and brings it down to kind of the street level, the level of the heart, level of the mind, level of the individual. I'm Izzy, the Artistic Director at the Emerging Writers' Festival. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you'll check out the rest of the Digital Writers' Festival at 2019.digitalwritersfestival.com. You can listen, make and play. And we've got Ghosts of the Internet, new machine learning tools for writers and experiments in digital storytelling. We've also got some really special webinars, including... Uh, one with one of my favourite audio producers, Mitra Kaboli from The Heart. And if you're enjoying our podcast, we love you right back. So drop us a review, recommend us to a mate, and hit subscribe wherever you like to listen. Yeah, and <clears throat> I think as you were all talking uh, about this risk of A, clinicalising, but B, also, I suppose, essentialising or reaching a point of... Um, I suppose, fixity without allowing for the diversity of experiences, but also still trying to, in some way, start to universalize. <laughs> what I kept thinking about was the debate that is currently being waged online, um, or at least I'm seeing it online because it pertains to US politics, but I think we can bring it back to Australia as well, about uh, concentration camps and the fact that that language should only ever be used um, for the Holocaust um, and People are speaking on many sides about that. Um, and 
it just it does make me think about Australia, the fact that we have avoided that language around um, our offshore detention program and have tried to avoid calling it a concentration camp. Um, but to bring it back to um, literature, I think especially about um, No Friend But the Mountains by Beruz Bachani, who, which is this incredible, horrifying, particularized account of the experiences um, that were inflicted upon him by the Australian government. Um, and I think, wow, that book was acclaimed as it should have been. But then I just think about that connection between literature and the real world. This, if we do want to try to um, create some sort of change, I just wonder, okay, so it made us sit up and, and take notice. We read it. We were horrified. But did we, did we move forward? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly. And, and so that got me thinking about, and this is the question that I wanted to pose to all of you, um, how do, how do you all feel about this idea that we live in the age of the trauma porn, that there's a market for work about trauma, but it doesn't actually uh, mean that that trauma is seen or recognized or fully understood. It's consumed. Do you feel that your work just sort of gets chewed up um, uh, without people actually really, really understanding what it is that's being spoken about there? Well, uh, oh, you go, Brad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think that like it's it's a huge issue like tra that this whole like just generally trauma and atrocity porn like it's like people uh, it it does have a very strong allure to to readers um, which is probably why for writers I think it comes with huge ethical responsibilities in the way you approach it. Um, I think there's a very fine line between, you know, meaningfully engaging with the suffering of people and making an exploitative spectacle of it. Um, and I think often uh, that line is crossed. Um, and, I, and I think it's interesting that, like, what you were saying about Beirut's book, um, which is it's extraordinary. It's one of the greatest things I've read in a very long time. Um, but, like, it's, I, I kind of sit and I think, oh, well, you know, firstly, he, he, it's actually a very, it's very delicately handled. He writes beautifully. And so I didn't ever feel that I was getting, um, a, like, a kind of a sensational view or, or anything like that. Um, it, it felt just very real and honest and, um, I, I think, uh, consciously not exploited um, but that said, like you know, it was it was the the toast of last year. Mm. Last year being the key, right? What's happened? Nothing much, right? And so, like that that idea of of engagement with trauma, particularly ongoing trauma, um, being something that can be just consumed. Uh, it might cause at the time considerable like. Um, uproar, or you know, um, but as 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 I said before, like nothing's changed for Beirut. You know, there's there's a, there's a bunch of prize money held on trust for him that he can't even touch, right? And that he's unlikely to ever be able to touch, right? And like we all have sort of moved on, right? Or or not? Yeah, a lot of people have moved on, right? And, and certainly. When you look at the results of the last election, 
well, what's different does this, you know, incredibly eloquent cry from a man on an I'll say concentration camp um, up in, uh, you know, in, in, in Manners. Um, uh, what difference did it make? Liberals are back with a stronger majority. Um, can I add, sorry, just very quickly that I was there at uh, Victorian oh, Premier Awards um, where, you know, he won both the prize for non-fiction and then the overall prize and um, and he was the Ruth was um, um, so his translator who was receiving the awards called him twice mm -hmm. uh, and he was part of the ceremony and people were cheering and it was like this thing and I felt so torn up about it mm -hmm. I, I just I had my stomach was just like you know so it, it was it was in, I, I just I, I couldn't reconcile. I, I thought, okay, this is. I mean, the thing about Baruch is that he said the language of journalism cannot help us and cannot do justice to what uh, what is happening to us. Yeah. We need to witness what's happening to us in the language of literature. He is mm -hmm. one of the biggest. You know, if if there is someone who believes in the power of literature, that's him, right? And he is. He has been absolutely consistent at the kind of life and death point yeah. in his belief in literature. So of course to, to celebrate that is the right thing to do and yet there was something about us cheering yeah. uh, and the room eating you know, canapes and drinking champagne and, and like, even yeah, yeah. because we are here, we are, you know, and I saw and I was looking and uh, you know, here were tramps on St Kilda Road that mm. would take us wherever we wanted to go and he was where he was. And then don't forget there are other you know, there are six hundred men, there are people who are you know, what, 70 attempted suicides, just yesterday someone set themselves on fire. So even if, and I know there is a campaign to free Baruth, Penn International picked up Baruth, it was Penn, Australian Penn was campaigning for him now, he's a, a cause, you know, that Penn International yeah. is fighting for, there is another campaign. Even if we get Baruth off Manus, what about how is he going to feel about 600 yeah. other men yeah. who yeah. is living there? Yeah. So that's, it's Sophie's choice even for him, and that's the best case scenario. So, as Bram said, you know, we have Victorian Premier's Awards and then we have the election, mm. and we have to sit with it, and boy, that's a terrible place to be in. Yeah. Sorry, Andrew. No, that's all right. No, it's, uh, it's a really, really interesting um, and uh, complex, complex question of, um, you know, the ethics of, of, honouring, of honouring that and yeah. whether that, 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 that honour ceases there or whether the actual honour is to somehow manifest some kind of some kind of change. But um, I think, you know, it's asking a lot of literature to um, suggest that, you know, one work can, um, w without all the other disciplines of thought and, uh, you know, um, the, 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 the kind of mechanics of social change that can really, that can do a lot. But I think it, it furnishes... Um, any kind of cause for for change or for healing with such a vital element, and that is the the space between experience and understanding, um, mm -hmm. where the silence is, where the uh, where the frame at this point, where the form has failed to has failed to, uh, to you know to to um, provide adequate shape and. Um, I have to believe in the necessity of that, um, but I also have to believe in the, um, you know, the, the necessity of it being a, 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 a multivalent sort of sort of approach. And I think um, 
you know, for, um, for my own work, uh, just getting back to your question about ethics. Sure. Um, a concern definitely is, um, first of all, if I'm writing about this, this aspect of my of my life, of my of my history, of my memories, you know, of my of my behaviour now, that uh, I haven't been able to get a proper handle on, and I feel it's had a kind of mastery over the way I the way I behave, you know, in a way that I can't control. Um, if I attend to that in language and I try to I try to give it a frame, I try to work through it, and I try to make good art out of it, you know, yes, there's a there's a, a sense in which with each draft of a poem or with each, uh, you know, with each kind of iteration of this study, it becomes less traumatic and more a, a poem that needs craft, that needs form, you know, and uh, that, to, to me, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a liberating feeling. That gives me control. But also, am I, am I victimising myself more than I actually feel that I am a victim or am I, am I painting myself as this this trauma survivor because I find that those details are compelling to readers. You know, mm -hmm. I, you have to ask yourself those questions. And I think in the, in the modern sense of literature, in that sort of self-reflexive, ironic way, and I know in, your, in, in both of your works, actually, it's, you see that a lot. There's that, the constant sort of running commentary about, okay, why am I saying this? How, why, am I, why am I going here? Is it if I, if I feel like I'm almost indulging in a sense of powerlessness here well let me let me question that let me let me find an, an ethics that feels right for this project and I think um, what the readers do with it after that is a different question but you know at the level of at the level of kind of the back end stuff where you're producing it I think that has to be concerned that's such a great point the thing about where you leave from the, the, the early stage where you're getting the ideas down to polishing it in the craft sense it is very easy then to, to lose that, that ethical um, uh, framework or constraint mm. and, and, and sort of gild the lily, basically. Right, to lean, for, lean for, into for it. The, and for drama's sake, for mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. aesthetic's sake, for whatever. Yeah. And, and, and it, I, I think I, I found actually during the kind of editing stages uh, of the book that there were times where I was just kind of like, Oh, hold on a sec. I've actually gone too far here mm -hmm. because I was mm -hmm. so caught up in mm -hmm. the 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 craft of it mm -hmm. that I forgot about the humanity of it. Mm. So. Mm. It seems like what you're all sort of gesturing at, highlighting, is the idea that as writers we need to be very careful and on our own ends. Um, and then the question of audience reception is something that we cannot control totally. And, and it seems like you highlighted there a, another danger to avoid while we're talking about dangers to avoid, such as universalization, et cetera. Um, one danger seems to also be individualization. So talk about the experiences of individuals without uh, rendering them celebrities in the case of Beirut, because I think that, I mean, I've seen tweets that Beirut has made saying, you know, it's not about me, actually. Why have I been raised as this sort of celebrity figure and sort of... I see the audience and the market sort of, or the gaze, I suppose, chewing um, up this topic and sort of spitting it back out <laughs> in a, a way that supports the status quo. Um, and 
So I'm just going to try to sneak one more question in, just because we started a little late, and then we'll go to Q&A. <laughs> and it seems like what you're also all touching on quite a bit here is um, the idea that do words fail us? Can we ever make a real relationship between the world um, and words? Does it ever really adequately capture that trauma? And, and it's interesting, Anne, as I really resonate with what you're saying about this idea of externalizing and externalizing, because I've often... Um, like in writing about trauma for myself is like you're sort of drawing a picture and you're shading it in more and more and more and more until it becomes an object out separate from yourself mm -hmm. outside of you and in some way becomes purged um, and so to that end I guess when if we're talking about um, being careful um, rendering things in a, a, in a thoughtful way and trying to use words to capture trauma um, I just wanted to ask if you think that there are particular modes or styles or, yes, indeed, sets of ethics that lend themselves better to writing trauma. Because I see a lot of hashtag synergy in all of your work <laughs> um, when it comes to, um, so yeah, things like looping. There's a lot of um, recursivity in your work, Bram, or there's a lot of gap filling. I mean, you, you fill these blanks in with um, use of the fictive. Um, and so a lot of the work is extremely nonlinear, and it just functions differently aesthetically. Um, so I suppose my question is something both about the aesthetics of writing trauma and how that can get at the ethics of writing trauma. Who do you want to go first? Come on, make just point. To <laughs> um, okay. Wow, I feel so much power. Oh, Maria, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> um, I'm victim of my own ethics. Well, so uh, one thing that I want to say really quickly um, in terms of, and, and I think it does connect to the question you're asking, but oh, I'm also aware that I need to speak extremely, extremely fast. No, no, no. Um, I mean, the organisers might get mad, but that's okay. Uh, um, so I, I feel like um, trauma um, can act um, as a bit of a smoke screen as well. So... Um, uh, one of the one of the women that I write about in um, my last book, she is a child Holocaust survivor. But a terrible thing happened to her in Australia, uh, and she had to kind of take law in her own hands, mm -hmm. which is a kind of very stupid way of talking about it. But nonetheless, uh, and the way in which she was, the the pain that she was dealing with, uh, and the choices that she was making was constantly kind of made sense of in reference. Uh, in reference to her, uh, you know, to the Holocaust and to her childhood trauma and how it became a kind of a prison where she kept saying, I'm doing this not because I'm a survivor. I'm doing this because a terrible injustice took place. Yep. You know, her grandson was, um, yep. uh, you know, taken away from her and he became, um, you know, there was a perpetrator who, um, you know, abused him for many, for many years because the grandmother was no longer able to protect her grandson and this was done by you know, the, the criminal justice system and so forth. Um, and so uh, it became, she, she was constantly perceived, you know, even the fact that she, um, you know, she, kid, she kidnapped the grandchild, it was constantly kind of understood with the reference to her trauma and it became like this terrible thing and she could not be seen in any other way. Um, and so I felt that it was really important to write about trauma as a kind of a... Uh, or how we may use trauma not to see what's actually what's actually going on with the person and and what is the person kind of you know what kind of choices they're facing and what kind of things are being taken away from them, mm -hmm. um, and so I, I feel like 
you know, and you, you talked about, you know, the, the way, you know, you know, post-traumatic stress is kind of, you know, used in a, in a way that we really, really need to think about and does as much damage as it does good, probably, overall. Mm -hmm. And I think that the very idea of understanding a human life in relation to their trauma and seeing that as a kind of a primary lens through which to see that person, that's also something that does probably as much good as it does damage. So that's, that's really important to say. And, and as writers, if we're just constantly writing about a person and that is, and this person is continuously defined by their trauma, whether that's in fiction or non-fiction, I think we have to do better. You know, that's so easy, you know, and, and you know, and just pushing against that. Uh, trauma does not define everything, the shape of the person, their, their ethics, their, you know, uh, whatever happens to their, their future generations and so forth. So just that's, you know, I love talking about dangers, dangers to avoid. It's my next book. But, um, <laughs> but in, terms of, in terms of kind of ethics and aesthetics, um, yes. So I think... In particular, I feel like using cliches of thought, not just cliches of expression, but of thought, mm -hmm. of observation, of uh, interpretation, it's particularly unbearable when we're talking about, because I don't, I don't write about myself, I write about other people. So if I use language that is tired, language that is asleep, language mm -hmm. that's pre-chewed, you've used the word chewed a number of times, so pre-chewed you know, pre and so forth, that feels to me like that's, that's partic a particularly awful thing to do as a writer. So I think, and it's both, um, you know, aesthetic, uh, because I am, you know, as a writer, you're constantly trying to find just, just that right singular word, not unique, but singular mm -hmm. word, to, you know. Uh, but it's also, but it has uh, as much bearing uh, on ethics as well. So that, that, to me, is the point, the nexus at which they connect. Mm -hmm. I, I think... I, I've got a microphone. <laughs> well, 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 the reign of Anders is over. <laughs> right at the end. I had a good run. Wait, do I? You're off. I think, like, following on from what Maria said, beware the narrative template, right? Mm -hmm. Because the problem with the narrative template, and, and it's, you see it in, in Holocaust literature all the time, right? Um, there are, you know, Everything then is forced to neatly, uh, neatly fit within. It, 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 it removes the individual experience. It removes agency. It removes... Mm -hmm. um, it actually often also is a way of uh, like sanitising uh, uh, those... You know, it'll, it'll Sometimes, actually, facts will be shoved into the narrative template and it's the one that you know, people use as their... As their the way they view history, and they're actually wrong, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so, like, I think, and people just keep buying into them and continuing the, uh, to perpetuate a narrative that is, is uh, I think, damaging uh, to um, history itself, but also um, to honouring the people who went through the, uh, uh, through the, the traumatic experience. Um, in terms of like stylistic, um, uh, artistic kind of uh, modes, I think uh, you know, is language ever adequate? Uh, <laughs> arguably not, but you probably yeah. look for the forms that work for you to make sense of what you're writing about. Like mm. for me, I found using the fable was mm -hmm. a very useful thing, and also um, magical realism worked. Was worked for me just in, yeah. in, in the context of my grandparents' um, 
experience and also kind of like um, Jewish and Czech mythology that I had grown up with. So all these things. So that's what worked for me in trying to interpret. But like that might not work for someone else and something that works for someone else might be absolutely um, uh, completely lost on me. Mm -hmm. I'll just... I'll say a few quick things. Um, so with the, you know, with the poem, um, it has a very a, a sort of othered relationship to truth than does, um, say, you know, the creative non-fiction form or even the novel form. Um, it's very hard to screen details in poems by the standards of sort of truth and veracity that you nor would normally apply to other kinds of writing, I think. And so, um, you know, uh, that, is, that is its great advantage, I think, if you're like me and you've needed kind of... Uh, Yeats talked about masks in his work, um, and I think that every poem that I write is a kind of mask where the artifice of the poem, the fact that I can go um, in the space of a single poem from a direct literal statement to flights of pure song, um, pure metaphor... Um, logical disruptions, temporal and spatial disruptions, everything happens uh, in, 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 that, in that one enunciation. Um, that, to me, is a, is a space that has proven um, extremely sort of safe and fertile for interrogating this, this trauma of mine and, um, I guess, to, to, to try to find a kind of... Um, I guess, a, a, a unifying sort of spiritual significance out of it. Um, but by the same token, um, if you're talking ethically, you have to think about when the poem does have to have a faithful relationship to detail. Can I... Can I, I can't make things up. I can't say things happened that didn't happen, you know. Um, I can't implicate people that might, might otherwise, you know, who know about this in ways that, um, you know, are wrong or dangerous or that I'm not comfortable with, you know. So you, you've got to think about where it's appropriate to use the poem's sort of flexibility um, of form and where you are still bound by um, a, an ethical duty to, to tell, I think, you know, from a personal perspective, to have that on your conscience or to feel like there's a falsity to it, like mm. you're saying, Maria, you know, what is a poem if not a search for the most precise, the most, the most sort of, um, sort of fine-edged <laughs> way to articulate something like that. So, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the space that I've worked with aesthetically. Well, I don't envy uh, the difficulty. I think that I'm sure many of you are writing trauma or engaging with um, work on trauma, and it is a very fraught, um, difficult space. And I could truly listen to you all talk forever, but I'm conscious that perhaps we can take like, a couple of questions. Um, I believe there's a roaming mic. No one wants to be first. I did a lot of work with um, limit events and trauma in young adult fiction and something that came across theoretically I wondered what you thought of was the idea of the limit event and that the most shocking thing is that after one that life just keeps going on um, and do you feel that writing trauma is dealing with the fact that um, what you thought was the limit is then 
has to be processed after the knowledge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, the silence, is, 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 that is a, that you is made them. You made question. them think. Notice yeah. they had answers to my question. Well, I think that if you, if there's something of a search for, um, you know, Bram's mentioned the word understanding a lot, um, but also I guess a kind of causality. You know, questions that I often ask are, you know, how did that, how did what happened lead to behaviour that I feel I'm exhibiting now, or why was I, why did I let that happen? Those kinds of those kinds of things. You're always going to be. It's a it's a mode of inquiry um, literature, and so I think that you're you're opening yourself up to discoveries um, that, particularly if it's something that's been very secret for a long time, like my experiences were, uh, where I think the vastness of the secret and um, I, I I maybe I'm, only, I'm I'm still just beginning to scratch the surface of how of how deep that secrecy ran, and so you have to accept that. There are no such thing as 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 hard edges around these things. Um, you, uh, silence and knowledge are always kind of interwoven, and uh, you know, just when you think you're getting a handle on something, you come you come up against another huge kind of vast pit of the unknowable. You know, but I think it's art gives you a, an, 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 a, a sort of a form to to value what's unknowable as well, and to mm -hmm. To appreciate the suggestive, the um, you know the, the the knowledge that you get out of those things. I was I was reading um, Valeria Louise Alley's mm -hmm. new novel, Lost Children Archive. Mm -hmm. I, I absolutely love Valeria Louise Alley, and there's this little this little part in it where she talks about how um, your you get these little sort of glints of light. Um, a kind of knowledge from you know from people from you know it's this metaphor of you know that one little candle in a dark room won't light the whole thing up but what it will do was, is it, it will alert you to the massive darkness that surrounds it mm. and that in fact having an awareness of the darkness is more valuable in a sense than just the light part and I think that certainly for me that's true in 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 what I do, in what I do. Um, I'll just add that, um, you know, the very definition of trauma is that that's the experience that, or something that cannot be experienced fully when it happens. So mm -hmm. it can only be experienced in the aftermath. And I think, so the key word here is time, right? And I think literature is a medium for, you know, dealing with time, noticing time, sitting with time, you know. So, um, and literature is always, to me, about the aftermath as well. So, yeah, yeah. But that's really beautiful from Valeria Luizelli. Mm. Thank you. I, I love her too. I, I can't answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I got these were brilliant answers. I, I can't possibly. This question's for Bram. Um, you said something about using a fable to try and explain the situation with the Holocaust. Can you sort of explain how you use the fable in that? Um, so, uh, my, it's hard to describe the structure of my book, but um, part of it's like a kind of a quest narrative that uh, is me searching for my grandparents' stories. Uh, and then the, the other side of it is a, a retelling of, uh, of their stories from the various bits and pieces that I found along the way. Um, when I... So, it's not a, an overarching fable, but there's a lot of fables throughout. 
Um, the, the, the book starts with a fable. Um, there are different characters who tell fables to one another. And I found that they were ways of kind of discussing um, like horrific things without ever having to venture into the, the atrocity porn type mm. stuff. Um, like people, I, 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 when you write about Holocaust, the one, the one uh, like advantage you have is that you can assume a certain amount of knowledge from the reader, right? Mm. Um, and so you don't have to revisit every detail. So, but there are, I just found that fables, um, particularly in that, that, the really classic sense that have like, you know, an, uh, you know, an, like an, an Aesop type thing that actually has a, a, a I could put a, you know, a one line meaning at the end of it. Uh, um, was uh, was just a really good way. Like it's a beautiful form. It's also the it's also the traditional Jewish storytelling form. So and it's what I grew up being told by my grandfather, right? Um, and I just found that it was yeah it was a way of engaging with very difficult things without having to directly describe um, what it was I was writing about. When you read it, you know what it is. What, 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 what's behind it, but you encounter it in this kind of magical um, uh, form that uh, gets, I think, into a kind of a deeper, like, a, I don't know, a deeper truth, a deeper meaning um, that you wouldn't necessarily get if, I, if you just wrote um, a descriptive of a horrific event. Mm. Um, I think that perhaps we should cut it there. I apologize if you had questions. I know that you did have one. Um, but please join me in thanking our lovely family. Thanks so much for listening. We hope to see you right here online for the rest of the Digital Writers Festival program. This podcast series was put together by our brilliant program producer, Lynn Nguyen. And the audio was produced by the fantastic Ahmed Yusuf. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs in Your Name. You can find them online as Huntley Music. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches.